0: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the new John le Carré adaptation directed by Thomas Alfredson. And here with me in the Slate studio is June Thomas. Hi, June. Hey, Dana. You are Slate's culture critic, a culture critic, I a don't... culture critic at Slate. Yes, and uh, and you are also a knower of the Jean Le Carre corpus of at least the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy of, which is one of the reasons I wanted you to come in and talk about this movie. You watched the entire, just recently rewatched the entire six-hour original miniseries, right, right, right. with I, Alec Guinness in the title yes, role.
1: yes, yes, yes. I remembered in the days of video stores having to run to the video store at like 5 to 10 just before it closed because I could not go to bed without (laughs) knowing what happened next. So, yeah, I remember it very fondly, so I just rewatched it.
0: And you just forked it over to me. So before Mm -hmm. I write about this, I'm going to be getting into some some Alec Guinness myself.
1: You're going to be getting no
0: sleep, dinner. I can't wait. Uh, I'm also reading the book, so I'm fully (laughs) wading through the morass of of John Le Carre right now. But I'm really happy you're here because I think this may be the first time that I've just nakedly begged someone in a spoiler special to tell me what happened in a movie. (laughs) And maybe you'll agree with me that the principal shortcoming of this movie, which in so many ways is very stylish and full of good dramatic moments, is that the plot is really, really hard to follow.
1: It is hard to follow... But I almost think it doesn't matter. I mean, it seems kind of a crazy thing to say in a thriller, in a whodunit, in a find the mole story, but it was so atmospheric. It almost felt that the mystery was just a vehicle for the atmosphere. And so, yeah, I agree. It was kind of unclear who the bad guy was, although it did become rather clear. It wasn't that mysterious, but it almost didn't matter. I didn't care that it was a bit big. Wow, and...
0: this is the second spoiler podcast I've recorded in a day where the other person, my interlocutor, liked the movie better than I did. Ah. Because I have to say, I completely agree for the first 45 minutes or so that I was willing to put up with anything for the atmosphere and just think it'll all come together. But then I just, I, this movie really started to get on my nerves because ah. because what was happening was so important to the story. I mean, every single scene advanced the plot in some way, right? As atmospheric as it was, there weren't really scenes of people just staring out onto damp English landscape. Well, there were some of those. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, of atmospherics in the background, but yeah. there's constantly, almost like uh, an Aaron Sorkin walk and talk or something, right? I mean, there's yeah. constantly, you know, urgent meetings between British intelligence officers discussing some urgent thing that's happening. And it really took me a long time to get even the faintest grasp on the fact that, as you say, it's a, it's a find the mole story. Yes. So can you, can you start talking me through what happens? At the very beginning, we are in Hungary, right? As the movie opens. That's
1: right. It does happen, open in Hungary. An agent named Jim Prideau has been sent there by Control, the head of the circus, which is the kind of codename for MI6, the British Secret Service.
0: Is that the codename only in this series? I believe
1: so. Mm -hmm. I I think it was one of uh, Le Carre's many inventions. And Prideaux has been dispatched on a mission to find the mole because the mole that's inside the very heart of the circus, one of the very top people. Uh, Control believes that one of his key aides is a traitor.
0: Control being John Hurt. Right. Right. And Prudhoe is played by Mark Strong, who seems to be the new go-to heavy in so many Hollywood movies. Yeah, he's very. I liked him a lot. And so he's been told that there is a Hungarian general who has
1: information that's going to blow the whole thing apart. Well, it does, but not in the way that's expected because Prudhoe is shot in the back. And one of the things that's different in the movie is we are kind of given the impression that he has been killed. As it happens, we find out later he hasn't been, but it doesn't truly matter at that point because what has really become revealed is that the mole knows that control knows that there is a mole at the top of the circus, and so things just kind of escalate. Meanwhile, George Smiley is contacted by civil servants, a senior civil servant. George
0: Smiley being Gary Oldman, right? The, the played same by Gary Oldman, who Alec Guinness plays in the right. original version.
1: Thank you, and. And And he's an old retired officer, right? Right. He was Control's right-hand man. So when Control was fired after the incident in Hungary involving Jim Prudeau, Smiley also was put out to pasture. And so he spends his days in used bookstores and in his scholarly pursuits. But he's kind of recalled by this minister when a story comes from a a far-flung young agent that also echoes this story that there is a mole at the very top of the circus. And so Smiley is tasked with finding this mole. There are four suspects, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, uh, rich man, actually, or no, it's not actually spy, as in the title of the book. But he has to figure out which of the very top people in the in the circus is the bad guy, is the traitor. Right. And then he spends a lot of time in a hotel room, kind of you know, looking at books. And in a way, then there's this scene. So he's assisted by Peter Gwilham, who's played by Benedict Cumberpatch in a way that I didn't even recognize. I mean, it was kind of, you know, a good 45 minutes in before I realized, oh my God, that's Sherlock Holmes.
0: Right, you don't expect to see him with a big crest of reddish hair like that.
1: Exactly. There are a lot of blondes in this movie, which is something I don't really uh, associate with spies for some reason. So Tom Hardy plays Ricky Tarr, who is this far-flung young agent who comes back with a story that he's gleaned from a woman who he has gotten involved with in his attempt to turn a rather minor Russian trade delegate – it is seeming rather complicated.
0: Yeah, at this point, it was actually the Tom Hardy sub story. Like, let's have a long flashback about Tom Hardy's romantic memories that I started to feel like, is this just taking me down a bunch of atmospheric rabbit holes to no particular effect? Well,
1: and the thing with spy stories is you never really know because, you know, everything is deception. So I even at the end, when I felt clear who was the mole, what had happened to him, you know, there was a certain feeling of, okay, now I know. And yet, there's always that sort of, well, really? Did we get the right man? Right. Uh, well, which
0: is why this movie seems to naturally lead into a, a sequel. I don't know if there's anything, any such thing planned, but there was a book after, after this book in the yeah, George Smiley series, yeah, and right? There's Smiley's another, people?
1: Yes. And there's another miniseries starring uh, Sir Alec Guinness and uh, Dana, if you want to borrow it. I have it at home.
0: I feel like, yeah, I need to get boned up on all of this stuff because it seems to be coming back into the popular culture in a big way. I mean, maybe another thing that puzzled me about this, besides just, you know, why does it have to be so almost deliberately obfuscating, was – why now? You know, it's, it was sort of odd to revisit, the, I guess this is sort of the height of the Cold War, maybe the early 70s, right? The book is from yes, 73, 73 74. 74. yeah, exactly. And other than the fact that, you know, everything looked really fabulous, this this director, the Swedish director, Thomas Alfredson, who also made the original Let the Right One In, the, the vampire movie from a few years ago, has this early movie, I was looking back at his filmography, called Four Shades of Brown. <gasps> I haven't seen Four Shades of Brown, but you could call this movie Four Shades of Brown. Absolutely. There's such wonderful production design and, and art direction and all these low-ceilinged, gritty, smoky rooms. That yes. just, it's that kind of, I mean, in America, it would be Watergate. In Britain, yeah. I don't know what the the word would be that would, that would evoke the kind of grimy early 70s, but it just is so completely that.
1: It's a little early for the winter of discontent, but it's, it's that era. It's that era of strikes and depression and grayness. And the
0: winter of discontent would be more like the punk years a few years later?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. mid seven, maybe five years later, four, four or five years later. Yeah, I mean, the atmospherics were amazing. I mean, and I lived in Britain. I lived through that time uh, and, you know, it just felt exactly... Exactly right and it kind of you know made me Feel that I made the right choice in leaving.
0: All the locations that have been scouted, just all that was really impeccably done. And the music, did you notice it was by Alberto Iglesias, your, I, your favorite from the Almodovar movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it also has a very... He's very good at that kind of faux period music, you know? Yes. I mean, it's, it sounds contemporary. It's not that it's deliberately retro, but it somehow sounds right over yeah. this, this uh, very paranoid conspiracy 70s type movie.
1: Exactly. For beautiful music, it does disappear because it seems so fitting. To get back to the question of why these Cold War movies now... In the notes, which I happen to get, the director or one of the producers talks about how right now a lot of people are feeling betrayed. You know, that the establishment or the people who are entrusted to take care of us may perhaps have been cheating us. I think it's referring to, you know, the the banks and and so on. I I don't know if that was just a stretch to kind of, you know, tie into the 1%, 99% Occupy kind of mood. But it actually feels... Somewhat apt to me. It, it does, you know, th- those those moods of questioning and, and betrayal do feel quite of the moment.
0: I guess I sort of wish that, you know, rather than it all being kind of about the mechanics, the process of spying, that there had been a little bit more ideology, even if it wasn't one character mouthing off about the ideology, just that there would be a little bit more of a sense of what communism was. I mean, right. if you're seeing this and, and you were born late enough that you don't remember the fall of the Berlin Wall, you could easily sort of not know what's at stake other than, you know, spy versus spy. Kind right. of, kind and in of fact, because there
1: is, uh, you know, quite an evocation of that upper-class British anti-Americanism, which is a little different from the current anti-Americanism. It, you know, in a way, the worst people involved are the Americans. Um, I mean, maybe the fact that Russians do shoot our pal Jim Predeaux means that they're actually worse. But, you know, in terms of people who are treated with most disdain, it's almost the Americans. uh, You know, there's there's a, a feeling of unease because uh some of the people at the top of the circus who take over from control and smiley seem to be motivated to make closer ties with our american cousins and you know that's seen as something rather contemptuous
0: right well should we reveal here as long as we're talking exactly how high up the conspiracy does go and how it all turns out yes so can you recall that well, all I know is as long as we're spoiling, all I know is that it turns out Colin Firth was the mole. <laughs> but that was something that irritated me throughout the movie too, because I, I kind of felt like it can't possibly be Colin Firth because it's it's too obvious that it would be Colin Firth, right? right? He's he's at every kind of Politburo type meeting of the the circus guys, right? When they're sitting around that fantastic orange paneled room right, that they have right. top secret meetings in, and. He's always sitting there kind of smirking cannily right next to Kieran Hines. And right. I just—I was watching it with my life partner and we were both utterly in the dark as to what was going on and kind of turning to each other vaguely and saying, what, every few minutes. And at a certain point we just said it has to be either Kieran Hines or Colin Firth because they're being set up as the two guys whose lives aren't being investigated or talked about.
1: Right. Well, and in a way, Colin Firth, who plays Bill Hayden, is the only one of these four top guys. You mean who, John Hurt, him? Well, uh, John, not John Hurt. Um, Toby Jones as Percy Alleline, David Denchik as Toby Esterhase, Kieran Hines as Roy Bland, and Colin Firth as Bill Hayden. Colin Firth is the only one of those four actors who has more than about three lines. I mean, so, yes, it's a rather is a little bit of a thumb on the scale. Yeah,
0: sort of a Scooby-Doo situation. Like, it's one of these four guys standing here, you know, these these cutouts. I don't know. I mean, by the end, the movie had, had really lost me. And even though there's something really virtuosic about the, the final sequence, mm-hmm. where, you know, um, Mark Strong actually finds and discovers and kills Colin Firth. Who was
1: his longtime sort of partner in crime. You also get the sort of intimation that they may even have been lovers at Oxford.
0: Wow, I never got that intimation. Maybe I was too dulled at that point by trying to figure out the, the plot. But I certainly did see that they were these longtime colleagues right. and kind of blood brothers. And and that, that's all done, that final assassination scene, to this beautiful musical backdrop right. of a sort of Hungarian-accented version of Charles Trenet's La Mer. Mm. And it's the kind of thing that out of context, sort of Coppola style, is this wonderful set piece. But at that point, the movie had really lost me and it had really started to get on my nerves. I just think it was packing way, way too much plot into a two-hour story. Yeah. Maybe it should have been a, a miniseries like the original.
1: You know, it, when something is done very well, there's a tendency to think, OK, this is how it should be. But comparing the two, I do find the miniseries to be far superior, especially because the movie had the benefit of the miniseries. You know, the movie came out 20 years after the miniseries, you know, they, they could learn from that. And in fact, it was they kind of made a slightly modernized, slightly gated up version, shorter one third as long version. And oh, now of I have to watch miniseries. it again with this
0: gate up. Maybe it would pick up the, the energy a little bit if I knew that there was some behind the scenes. I actually shenanigans didn't mean so on. much
1: in that case, Prideau and uh, Hayden, which is in the realm of insinuation. But for example, Peter Guillem, who in the book and in the miniseries is a young heterosexual, is portrayed as a, a gay man. And it's actually a very moving scene when Smiley says, All right, so you've got to be like Caesar's wife and you know be above reproach. So he has to go home and tell his boyfriend to clear out and that's devastating so in that sense you have this okay, these kind of gay lives of of this Spies but again, that introduced. was just barely nodded at. No, and yeah, once absolutely. again, I had
0: to turn to my viewing partner and say, wait a minute, is that the idea? That's his boyfriend and he's throwing him out? I mean, the movie really didn't give them a moment with each other. It didn't pre-establish that relationship or, mm-hmm. or those
1: characters. Yeah, no, you're right.
0: So just quickly before we wrap up, let's talk a little about performances because this is such an actor's movie and yeah. it's such a juicy roster of, of British acting talent, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's Gary Oldman in the, I guess, lead role, although he doesn't really have more time on screen than anyone else. Colin Firth, as we've said, Mark Strong, um, Benedict Cumberbatch, the new mm-hmm, household mm-hmm, name, fun mm-hmm. to say household name name of, of British television. <laughs> who did you think gave particularly noteworthy performances or who did you like seeing on screen? I did
1: like Benedict Cumberbatch. And not only because he kind of snuck by me for for a good few minutes. I really liked Gary Oldman's performance because I like unshowy performances. I suspect that he probably was on screen actually for much more than the other cast members. But he's you know he managed he's playing to kind
0: a colorless of, guy which is, is not an easy role
1: absolutely and I think he you know did a good job of that very subtle very kind of a chameleon character you know the job of a good spy is to blend in um, and he blends right in which is a problem for an actor who's looking for awards but it's, no, you're it's right. right for you're the role. right. And it's
0: a very listening performance. I mean, all of these scenes of, you know, massive exposition and explaining these incredibly complicated, you know, internecine s- skullduggery mm-hmm. details. He's just sitting there kind of nodding away in semi-darkness. And he has to do a lot with very little in those scenes. Yeah. He also looks so different than the usual Gary Oldman, right? I mean, Gary Oldman is still a relatively young, handsome man, but he really sells it that he's this old gray pouchy guy who's past his prime.
1: Speaking of performances, I do want to put in a word for a British actress who I love. And since I've just said the word actress, you know who I'm talking about, because there really are very few women in in the place. And that is Kathy Burke, who plays uh, the former head of research at the circus. Oh,
0: yeah, who who Gary Oldman goes to visit in that one scene. I so wish that she had come back for more scenes. She was a fantastic
1: character. Right. She's a fantastic character. And I love that actress. She is typically has played ugly people. That has been her, how she was typecast. She's actually also played schoolboys as an adult woman uh, in a weird way. And I just think she's amazing. She is fearless. And I, I just love seeing her and things. And she, she doesn't make many films, I don't think. But anytime she does, I think I want to run and see her.
0: Yeah, now I want us to see her other things too. Kathy Burke, you say, is her yeah, name? Yeah. Yeah. So this one scene where Gary Oldman goes to sort of consult with her, basically, she's sort of a wise old spy from, from the old days, from the days of the war. And slightly crazy. And yeah, a little bit nuts and very fixated mm-hmm. on, on the Second World War and what a noble time that was for Britain. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the few moments where I did feel that the movie started to have some larger political thinking going on, mm-hmm. you know, beyond just let's track down this one guy who's a mole, that there was some reflection on, on history and on the 20th century and on mm-hmm. war and the mm-hmm. Cold War. And, and it was really beautifully done. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, June, thanks for coming in and giving me some something to cling to as I write my review of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, besides there's a mole. I can't even say that it's Colin Firth <laughs> in the review, so I'm down That's to right. one sentence. <laughs> ah. Good luck. We'll come back in again soon and spoil another movie. I will. Our producer is Chris Wade. Our editor this week is Andy Bowers. And our executive producer is always Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.
1: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.